Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Lovett. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Dan and I just had a chance to talk to Vice President Joe Biden. We asked him about the debate. We asked him about Donald Trump's lack of a second term agenda and the stakes in this election. It was a great conversation. So, um, you know, listen to it. Returning to Pod Save America, he's the first person to ever win three presidential debates in only two attempts. Please welcome <laughs> Vice President Joe Biden. Thanks for being here. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you. As Leslie Stahl said to Donald Trump before he walked out on the interview, are you ready for some tough questions? <laughs> you guys, I know it wouldn't be easy. I'd rather be on Fox. They make it easier for me. <laughs> Wait till you see these fastballs coming at you. I know. I'm, no, I'm happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. I want to start with uh, last night's debate. Um, on that debate stage, and actually throughout this campaign, President Trump has lobbed false accusation after false accusation about your son, Hunter, for doing things that we know for a fact that Donald Trump's children have been doing, profiting from the presidency. Yet, both, both last night and throughout this campaign, you have not brought up his children's activities. And I, I assume that that's a specific decision. I'm curious why you've made it. It's a specific decision, and I just think it's crass. I mean, uh, I, uh, I, I just, I've never thought it was, uh, look, I'm running against Donald Trump, not his children. Um, and the American people want to hear about their families, not about Trump's family or my family. Although I'm very proud of my family. I don't, there's, I, I, I think, uh, but I, I just, I just think it's, it's just not how I was raised. It's that basic. It's Donald Trump. So also in the debate, uh, Trump seemed to think he had a kind of gotcha moment there at the end when you talked about transitioning away from oil and fossil fuels, even though ending subsidies for those industries is very popular. And he really wishes you'd say you'd ban fracking, even though you haven't. At the same time, you've set these ambitious climate goals as part of your plan. And a lot of polling shows that climate change is the number one issue among young people, particularly among young people deciding whether or not to vote. What is your message to those young people who are passionate about this issue, but skeptical that they can count on you or really any politician to actually deliver and take this issue with the urgency it demands? It's the number one issue facing humanity. And it's the number one issue for me. And all the way back in the 80s, I'm the first person ever, ever to lay out the need for a to deal with global warming. And back in those, and PolitiFact said, check it out, it was a game changer. And, but it's just the way in which this campaign had been run from the beginning about me in the primaries that it just never got traction. Look, climate change is the existential threat to humanity. The existential threat to humanity unchecked, it is going to actually bake this planet. Not, this is not hyperbole. It's real. And we have a moral obligation. There's not many things. Dan and I worked together a long time. You don't hear me often invoke a moral obligation. We have a moral obligation, not just to young people. We have a moral obligation to everyone. Look what's happening right now. You just look around the, the United States of America. Forests are burning at a rate larger than Connecticut and Rhode Island combined being lost. People are losing their homes, their lives. In the middle of the country, we're in a situation where you have 100-year floods occurring every several years, wiping out entire, entire counties and doing great damage. And by the way, as Dan, you may remember the first thing that Brock and I were told about when we, took, when we went over to, we're taking to the... Uh, 
uh, over to the uh, um, Defense Department. They said the greatest threat facing, the greatest security threat America faces is climate change. Because what's going to happen is you see massive movements of populations fighting over land, fighting over the ability to live. And it, it, it is an existential threat. And so I just think, but it also presents an enormous opportunity. It's a bizarre, you know, we're one of the few countries in the world that's always been able to take things that are serious problems and turn them into opportunities. It's also the vehicle by which we can not only save the planet, but we can generate such economic growth and lead the world. But we have two problems. One, we have an internal problem in the United States. What are we going to do? We make up, we make up 15% of the problem, but we're in a position where the rest of the 85% of the world is responsible for the rest. We can go, we can go net neutral in terms of carbon tomorrow. And we're still going to have our shores flooded. We're still going to have these terrific hurricanes. The polar caps are going to continue to melt. We're going to have, we're going to have hurricanes and storms, that will, and they're going to increase. And so we have to do two things. We need a president who can lead the world. And that's why I was so deeply involved in setting up the existence of the Paris Climate Accord, as well as do the things we have to do and can do. And the last point I'll make, I'll pay up any detail you'd like me to, but the last point I'd make is that, you know, the way we have to do this is we, you know, we cannot discount the concerns of people, what it means to their well-being, in the, not only in the future and now, but what, what about how they make a living? That's why I'm the first person I'm aware of that went to every major labor union in the country and got them to sign on to my climate change plan, which is extensive. We're going to get to zero net emissions for the production of electricity by 2035. And it's going to create millions of jobs. But we got to let people, we, we can't be cavalier about the impact it's going to have on how we're going to transition to do all this. But I just think it's a gigantic opportunity, a gigantic opportunity to create really good jobs. What do you see as the relationship you're going to have? So, so a lot of climate activists, you, you've, uh, have said, basically, we have to do everything we can to get Joe Biden in office. It's an existential threat. And then their plan is they're going to put a ton of pressure on you to make sure that you really deliver on uh, solutions around climate change. What do you expect to be I'm a working put pressure relationship on between them. these groups? I'm going to put pressure on them to live up to what this cause they talk about. And it starts off with voting. It starts off with volunteering. It starts off with making sure that they're organizing and they're taking care to make sure that people on the, on, the, on the fence line communities get taken care of, make sure the priorities are set. So we're in a, in a situation where people who are hurt the most get help the quickest. You know, it's, this is, uh, you know, I, I understand uh, the sense, but the fact is that, look, the first thing we're going to do is make sure that we use the ability we have now, and I will as president, to do away with the 100 changes in, in, in executive orders he is in, he's put forward to do everything from allow more methane to seep into the, into the atmosphere, allow to pollute rivers, a whole range of things. We can do that very, very quickly. But it's also going to require us to make sure that we deal with what we have to do now. For example, we should, you know, as you guys know, because you both worked in administrations, that 
The president of the United States has control over $600 billion in assigning federal contracts. Everything from one of the largest auto fleets and trucking fleets in the world to infrastructure. When, as, as Dan will remember, when the president asked me to handle, make sure we got the Recovery Act and $800 billion was going to be distributed to keep us from going into a depression, he gave me the authority to run that from beginning to end. And what we did was we were able to invest in bringing down the cost of renewable energy to compete with coal, gas, and oil. And so now you see what's happening. It's becoming a fait accompli. No one's going to build another oil or gas-fired electric plant. They're going to build one that is fired by renewable energy. We have to invest billions of dollars in making sure that we're able to transmit over our lines. You may remember, Dan, when we sat in that, those office buildings in the, in the interregnum period there, and we thought we could just make sure we could transfer this, re this renewable energy across the country. We had all, remember we had that big map up and we showed where <laughs> all the, all, all the high-tension wires were going to go? The smart grid. That's right. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. but, but what happened? What happened was not in my neighborhood. People didn't want to have high-tension wires in their neighborhood. So what we're going to do and what's happening now, and we've been working on this for three years, you have a lot of folks in Silicon Valley and other places doing research on battery technology. So now we're going to be able to store, for example, they can have a battery about the wide as my, the, the width of my arms and about this thick, that if you have solar power in your home you're, and the sun doesn't shine for a week, that battery will store it. You're going to be able to have all the energy you need in the meantime. We're going to provide 550,000 charging stations for real on the new infrastructure, green infrastructure we're going to be building. We're going to own the electric automobile market. We're going to create a million jobs in doing that. These aren't, this is not hyperbole. These are things that have been run through by economists in Wall Street and, and also by people who are in, 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 in the thought community, the people who are running these major institutions. And so there's so much we can do and we can create a clean environment, but we can also grow the economy and get people good wages. The fastest growing industries are solar and wind, solar and wind. And they're not paying 15 bucks an hour. They're paying prevailing wage. Every single contract the president gave me the authority to let when we were running the Recovery Act, every single one paid prevailing wage. That's 45 to 50 bucks an hour plus benefits. And so that's how we're going to grow this economy. You know, in the debate stage, and frankly, throughout this whole campaign, there's been sort of a mystery. Uh, every time Donald Trump's been asked about a second term agenda, he has failed to answer that question in any, with any detail. But in, in just the last hour here, the Republican Party tweeted out his second term agenda. So I'm going to read that to you. Uh, I'd be happy to hear <laughs> it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Item number one, establish a permanent man presence on the moon. Item number two, send the first man mission to Mars. Item number three, build the world's greatest infrastructure system. And item number four, establish national high-speed wireless internet network. Now, I will not ask you to respond to that absurdity if you do not want to, but what would sort of be your version of that tweet? What, is, what are the three or four things that are at the top of Joe Biden's first-term agenda? Get control of the virus. Get control of coronavirus. 
Without that, nothing else is going to work very well. Number one. Number two, invest in the community in real infrastructure. He's been promising to invest in infrastructure in 17, 18, 19, 20. He hasn't done a single solitary thing. So we're going to invest in generating economic growth in the United States by making it and buying it from buying in America, made in America. He is exporting jobs overseas. The first thing we're going to have to do is to, in order to compete internationally, is we're going to have to compete. We used to have, we used to invest a little over 2.6% of our GDP in, in research and science. It's now down to 0.6%. We're going to invest in science and technology. We're going to make sure that we're, we can compete with the rest of the world and lead the rest of the world. We have the greatest institute. Look, everybody, we, we have more great research universities in the United States of America than every other research university in the entire rest of the world combined. And the good news is the people own them. They are not private institutions. Los Alamos is owned by a university. It is a university. The people own these systems. And we so underestimate. That's where every major breakthrough has come out in the last 25 years. And we're going to invest in those. We're going to continue to invest in the research and development. And it's going to go from making sure we have access to know how we're going to generate economic growth through infrastructure that's green, as well as we're going to invest $5 billion a year in cancer research. We're going to cure cancer. Mark my words. We're in a situation where, as you know, I ran the moonshot for the president. And what happened was we found significant breakthroughs. Everybody in the past walked by the mirror and looked in the mirror and saw a, a, a Nobel Prize about to be won. Great scientists, but they didn't share much information. They virtually didn't share any information. Well, that's all changing now. It's changing drastically. And we're going to have to invest in dealing with the things that affect the mental, physical, and and environmental health of the country. And we can do that. For example, if we don't do something about dealings with, with, with Alzheimer's, every single bed, hospital bed in America within the next 20 years will be occupied by an Alzheimer's patient. And no insurance company is going to invest the kind of money needed to deal with it. We can do that. We can do the same thing with other th diseases like diabetes. We can do it with regard to a whole range of issues. So it's not just making sure we deal with the physical environment, which is critical, and investing in the technologies. For example, we're gonna, one of the things I laid out, and I know it's boring as hell, but it's consequential. I laid out a farm policy, a farm, F-A-R-M, that allows us to drastically increase the amount of acreage able to set aside. So we pay farmers for putting their, their land in a land bank and planting deep-rooted plants. You say, what's that about? It's about carbon capture. Put this in perspective. We, right now, they're burning the Amazon. The Amazon absorbs more, more carbon from the air into the ground, into the roots of trees and, and vegetation, than is put into the air by the entire United States of America every single day. And what are we doing? We're letting it burn. We're not doing much at all organizing the rest of the world to go to the 
Brazilians and say, we're going to pay you collectively the following multi-billion dollars to go in a, a different direction. If you don't, you're going to pay an economic price for doing it. Well, right now, we can have the first net zero industry in America, carbon emission, can be agriculture. For example, I know this is boring stuff, but you think about what it can do. Look, all of the methane that is going into the air because of cow manure and because of pig manure and because of chickens. You know, we, we, we have a $4 billion industry on the east coast of the state of Delaware. I mean, the east coast of the United States and the Delmarva Peninsula. Well, guess what? The chicken manure has been polluting the estuaries in the Chesapeake Bay. We know now how to take the methane out of the manure, turn it into pellets and make it re reusable fertilizer and take the methane and store it in other ways. And it creates jobs in the process of doing it. But we, you know, when you try to talk about things, other than the kids who are really deeply into the environmental stuff, it kind of glazes over. So there's so many things we can do and in the process. We can, generate, we can generate economic growth in rural America, let alone what we're going to be able to do relative to the other changes we can make with regard to the environment. For example, well, I, I won't go on. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but I get a little excited about it because it's such an opportunity. And by the way, that's why we have to. The first thing I'm going to do is rejoin the Paris Climate Accord because without us, nobody runs it. Nobody steps up. No one has the moral authority to do it. And I'll conclude by saying the thing that bothers me most about Donald Trump is he has so fundamentally damaged the moral authority we have. We have the most powerful military in the history of the world. We not only lead by the example of our power, but the power of our example. And our example we're setting around the world is devastatingly negative to our own security interest and the world's overall interest. More than you ever wanted so, to know, I apologize. You didn't give me No, 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 it was great. No, I'm, I'm interested. I'm very interested. Look, Trump thinks we should go to the moon. You want to solve climate change. I think that that's a good distinction. One final question for you, Mr. Vice President. This interview is going to come out tomorrow, which is early vote day. And so I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a two-part question, which is what I think President Obama used to call pulling a Chuck Todd. So part, <laughs> <laughs> part one, what's your message to the folks who have not yet voted or do not yet have a plan to vote? And part two, for the folks who have already voted, the 50 million Americans who've already voted, what can they do over the last 10 days to help make sure that you're the next president of the United States? Well, first of all, you know, uh, what really rankles uh, my opponent is I say that uh, the thing that bothers him most is he's not a patch on Barack's jeans. I mean, uh, Barack was one hell of a president. And I tell you what, man, what an honor it was. I think you guys believe it, too, to serve with him. I mean, an incredible honor. And uh, I'm not being solicitous. I really mean that. Um, he had more integrity in his little finger than most people have in their whole body. And he had a backbone like a ramrod, has one. But one of the things that I think is most important is <clears throat> those who haven't voted yet, first of all, go to IWillVote.com to make a plan exactly how you're going to vote, where you're going to vote, when you're going to vote, because it can get complicated because the Republicans are doing everything they can to make it harder for people to vote, particularly people of color to vote. So go to IWillVote.com. Secondly, 
we're in a situation where we have put together, and you guys did, did it for our administration, the President Obama's administration before this. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. What the president is trying to do is discourage people from voting by implying that their vote won't be counted, it can't be counted, we're going to challenge it, and all these things. If enough people vote, it's going to overwhelm the system. You see what's happening now. You guys know it as well as I do. You see the long, long lines in early voting. You see the millions of people have already cast a ballot. And so don't be intimidated. If, in fact, you have any, any problem, go to, and I don't have the number, but it's 833-DEM-VOTE, the, the letters D-E-M-V-O-T-E. Call that number. We have over 1,000 lawyers, over 1,000 of them. Answer the phone if you think there's any challenge to your voting. Go to 833-DEM-VOTE. Dial those letters on your phone. That will get you the assistance that we have already put in place. Thirdly, for those who've already voted, it's not enough with God love you. It's not enough that you voted. You got to go out and get your friends. You got to go out and get your family. You got to go out and get people. There's so many people like the old days when we used to, it used to be a lot easier. There's so many people when you were able to knock on doors and know Mrs. Smith didn't have a vehicle, that you drive her to the pole or you, the polls, you make sure that you get your friends, your family. Because look, you know, as John Lewis said before he passed away, it's really, you have a sacred right and it's a sacred obligation to vote. Particularly young people. You're the ones who, if 18 to 24 year old, 25 years old vote in the same percentage that the rest of the population voted in, in 2016, we know what happened? we would have had 5.2 million more people voting. You can own the election. You can own the outcome. It really, 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 really matters. And make the case to your friends. Make your case to your friends that they can't complain if they don't vote. And it's gonna be counted. It's going to be counted. And because I think the American people are going to show up, Dan, in such large numbers, there's going to be no way to avoid the outcome. And look what he's done from the beginning. Done everything to try to discourage you, saying he's not sure he'll accept the results. He's not sure what he'll do. I guarantee you he'll accept the results and he'll be out in. <laughs> there's no one going to stick with him. You know, uh, you know, he is, he's the only president I know that six of his generals who've worked directly for him said he's unfit to be president, commander in chief. So I'm not worried about any any coup here. You know, I'm not that he's saying there's going to be a coup. But it's, look, think about everything that's been said. When I said about three months ago, I think he's going to he's going to suggest he may not step down. He may not accept the outcome of the vote. People said, oh, there goes Biden. What did he do two weeks later? It's all designed to try to keep people from voting. So those who have voted, you know how long it took you, how you did it, what you did. Go to particularly if you have, you know, grandparents or older folks in your neighborhood you know, and they have, a, they have an absentee ballot. Show them it matters how they fill it out. It's complicated, some of it. They haven't made it easier for people in many states. And by the way, that's why we challenged it may, it may not hold up 
in Pennsylvania with the Supreme Court were to change it, but now they've allowed the county of his postmark as can be counted for all the way for the next several days, which it should be. Well, you have in Texas, the governor having these drop boxes, one in a county. Some of the counties are as big as my state almost, literally. And the idea there's one drop box. And so we're going to be, we're going to have enough people out there policing it, watching it, making sure do not be intimidated, but go out and help those who you know are going to have physically, physical difficulty getting to polling place or may need help on how to get done what they need to get done to vote. Iwillvote.com will tell you exactly where you can vote, where you live, what circumstances are available to you, and vote early. Vote early. But I, and I, by the way, I particularly at one of the things we did, you know, you guys' generation has stepped up. One of the things you may recall that I started arguing for is the need for significantly more young poll workers. Well, thousands of you have showed up. Thousands of you have showed up. Because of COVID, older people who traditionally are the poll watchers and make sure everything's squared away, they're afraid to show up because they're dying. Or they're getting COVID, many of them. They're worried about it. They're seeing what's happening to their friends. And so what's happening is this election is a generational election. This is this, is this generation's opportunity, not a joke, to take back our democracy. It literally, literally, my word as a Biden is at stake. Our democracy is at stake. And, you know, we all, I, and I have to admit to you, you know, I always heard that. I was a history and political science major in college. I've been involved in public life my whole adult life. But I never really believed it, that it was really, you know, every generation has to earn it. Well, guess what? It's in jeopardy, man. It's in jeopardy. Do not be intimidated. Do not be intimidated. And whether you vote for me or against me, vote, vote, vote. There's not a single thing we can't do when the American people stand together. And that's not hyperbole. I mean it. There's nothing, nothing beyond our capability. On that note, Vice President Joe Biden, thank you so much for your time. Good luck in the last 10 days. And let's go win this thing. I'm going to give it hell. Let's win it. Thank you very much. By the way, you guys have such an enormous following, not only with my children, my grown children, but my five grandchildren who range in age from 27 to uh, to 14. Or no, that's not true. 16. She'd be very upset. I said <laughs> 14. Um, but all kidding aside, you 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 really you're, you're really reaching out and 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 uh, you touch people because you talk. You know, you talk plainly to people and it matters. It really matters. Anyway, thanks. Looking forward to seeing you guys in person. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pod Save America is a Cricket Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papa Demetrio, Quinn Lewis, Brian Semmel, Caroline Reston, and Elisa Gutierrez for production support. Into our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week.